Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Mark Lawrence Schrod on Smashing the Liquor Machine. First, I wanted to let you know about our website at booksonpod.com. When you go there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the food and beverage, history, humor, philosophy, or psychology category for episode number 140 with Edward Slingerland on Drunk. This is Edward Slingerland, author of Drunk, How We Sip, Dance, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Mark Lawrence Schrod is an associate professor of political science at Villanova University and a published author. His newest book is titled Smashing the Liquor Machine, A Global History of Prohibition. Mark, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Hey, not too bad. How's it going? Doing great. Thank you. So what is the liquor machine? Oh, what is the liquor machine? Ah, the liquor machine is, uh, it's, uh, let me just back up really quickly here. Is that, sure. you know, when I originally titled, titled the book, it was supposed to be the global war on alcohol. And one of the things that I discovered when going through this book is that, you know, when you go back to temperance and prohibitionism, they rarely ever used phrases like alcohol prohibition. Their focus wasn't on the alcohol so much, the stuff in the bottle. They were more focused on, fighting this so-called liquor machine, which was, you know, like a political machine of, you know, individuals who were selling alcohol, big businesses, um, and making a lot of money from it, and then using that money, you know, as any good political machine would to, to buy political influence and buy votes and all sorts of stuff. And so it became fighting not so much against liquor, not against the stuff in the bottle, but uh, the, the big liquor machine or, or, you know, political machine that kind of uh, spawned that, that whole thing. And just for a bit of context for everything else we'll be discussing over the course of the hour, what is the difference between temperance and prohibition? The way that it usually comes up in the literature is, is temperance was like about moral suasion, right? It was trying to get people to, uh, to boycott alcohol um, you know, for, for whatever reason, on their own good, for their uh, for moral salvation, or for whatever it was, that, that kind of focused on on the temperance part of it. Uh, prohibition is is kind of the legislative aspects um, where you have people trying to uh, to actually you know institute legislation to um, you know get rid of licenses for alcohol outlets and so on uh, to effectively, you know, to, to ban the, the liquor trade altogether is usually what we think about as, as, as prohibition. Uh, but even, you know, honestly, that, that fundamental distinction that usually comes up in, in the literature, uh, I find from this research to be very blurred, you know, it's like, it was, uh, you know, that, that's sort of the constant thread about, um, you know, temperance and prohibitionism had at its heart this attempt to, um, again, focus on the, the liquor machine, trying to, to focus on uh, persuading people who were selling liquor from selling it and, and getting people addicted and, and then making money hand over fist from, uh, from their addictions. You originally planned on writing two sections for smashing the liquor machine. Why did you decide to write a third section that literally doubled the total number of pages? Yeah. And so, again, this was, uh, you know, the whole thing is kind of like, yeah, it's interesting that there's this, you know, the, the, the new Matrix movie coming out uh, at about this time, because I, I kind of feel like when I was going through this research and then ultimately coming up with the, the final product, it was very much kind of a, a red pill, blue pill 
kind of moment, you know, trying to, to say, okay, well, something's not quite right with the way that we look at, at temperance and prohibition history. Um, and then when you start digging into it further and further and further, the further down the rabbit hole you get. Um, and so the proposal originally was to look at temperance and prohibitionism in the rest of the world and see what we can learn from it. And so I had, you know, chapters on Russia, chapters on Sweden, Belgium, uh, you know, the British Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, the Ottoman Empire. And then it was supposed to wrap up with a nice little um, like one chapter on what we can learn from that and implement in the United States. Um, and what happens when you look at the rest of the world in terms of temperance and prohibitionism, you find that it really wasn't what we're taught in the United States, that it wasn't a, you know, conservative, evangelical, Bible thumping movements, you know, people trying to impose their, their morality. But what you find is that temperance was kind of worked hand in glove with um, sort of nationalism, self-determination, uh, social democracy, liberalism uh, in all these countries around the world. You know, so you find that the people who were the, the biggest promoters of temperance were promoting women's rights and indigenous rights and, uh, and, and nationalism against imperialism. So you have people like like Kamal Ataturk in Turkey, who was a, a drunkard, to be sure, probably the drunkest leader in world history. <laughs> but he was also a prohibitionist uh, because he was fighting against, you know, um, you know, the, 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 the politics and the domination of, of the British. Um, and so that's, you know, I, I gave a, a talk here at, at Villanova with one of my colleagues, you know, kind of just about brown, a brown bag lunch, you know, discussion and kind of showed everybody, you know, the, the, the fruits of my labor, as it were, at that point in time. Uh, and one of my colleagues, uh, she says, oh, OK, uh, if that's true, if your thesis is true, that that temperance was not about Bible thumpers, but was about indigenous rights and self-determination um, and, and sort of, you know, the, the rights of the community against sort of predatory capitalism and, and against uh, a predatory state. She says, um, so, so where are the Native Americans in your story? And I, I was like, oh, damn, I don't have I don't have a good answer for that. I really don't. Um, and that's essentially made this that was the, the comment that made this a second, you know, essentially a double album. It went from, uh, you know, from, I don't know, 300 pages to 700 pages really, really quickly, uh, because once you sort of view it through that lens of, you know, temperance as sort of indigenous self-determination, all of a sudden you have to end up rewriting vast swaths of American history. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. And you find that, uh, you know, the, the first uh, prohibitionists in this country were were Native Americans um, and then followed quickly by abolitionists, African-Americans, suffragists, civil rights leaders. And it all becomes part of this entire thing. So that's that's the point where this thing that was, you know, supposed to be pretty modest when I proposed it uh, ended up being this, this gargantuan book that's the size of a brick. Now you could throw it through a, you know, through a Barnes and Noble window if you had to. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's especially important also because this oppression by alcohol really does go back hundreds of years to the initiation, not just of this country as a country, but really Europeans setting foot on the Americas and trying to uh, gain a sort of influence on Native Americans. And sadly, it's a trend that continues to this day on reservations where you have so many different alcohol, uh, drug problems, gambling problems as well. It's something that those peoples have never been able to dig themselves out of. 
Absolutely. And it's in many ways a, a very colonial imposition. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm from the Midwest originally. I'm from Iowa. I moved out here to uh, the Philadelphia area about a decade ago, uh, getting, a, getting a job out here. And I've, I've always been, you know, absolutely fascinated by the deep history uh, that's out here. Um, and, and one of the ones that I found, you know, in, in doing this research was, um, was uh, surrounded William Penn, you know, uh, of, of Pennsylvania fame, uh, you know, Quaker who was uh, given this large tracts of, of land out here. Uh, and the first things that he wanted to do was make peace with the Native American peoples who were there. Uh, and so he, he met with Native American tribesmen and asked them, you know, what their, their interests were. Uh, and, and across the board, the Native American tribes were, um, were very strong in their, uh, their assertions that the settlers who had come before uh, Penn and the Quakers, you know, there, were, there had been Swedes there, there had been, um, uh, you know, British there as, as well. And the thing that they hated across the board was that these European settlers were selling liquor and trading goods for liquor with the tribes, and uh, they wanted to put a stop to it. And so... Um, and, and so as so-called great laws from the, the 1690s, um, you know, William Penn instituted a, a strict, not a prohibition on drinking. Again, that's not what, what it was all about. It was a prohibition on getting other people addicted, on, on white settlers, Quaker settlers, getting Native Americans drunk and addicted and then being able to take advantage of them. Um, and so that was, wow, that's interesting. That's, that's local history here, uh, you know, and, and they don't really think of it coming up in, in, in the, the usual prints and prohibition discourse. We'll get more into uh, the American writing prohibition a little bit later in the conversation. First, though, part one of this book is titled The Continental Empires. Why does your chronicle really begin in Russia in the mid-1800s? Uh, well, for a couple of reasons. One is that been my kind of bread and butter for a long time it's uh you know my, my last book was on vodka politics uh you know i i, I teach about russia I've, i lived in russia you know i study russia for the last 20 or so years um and i figured just at, from a, a position of being sort of a an american reader there's nothing more foreign and more um you know completely at odds with the idea of temperance as midwestern evangelical bible thumpers than to plunk you straight down into the middle of the russian empire hmm. Um, where you also had these same sorts of, of temperance dynamics. And, uh, and Russia becomes, with the outbreak of World War I, actually the first prohibition country on earth, even though we think of that as, as sort of American exceptionalism. Um, and so it, in some ways it was just kind of a, con a continuation of my, my previous book, uh, but also it was kind of just trying to take the, the American reader out of their comfort zone as far as I possibly could. How did Leo Tolstoy influence Russian prohibition? Tolstoy is fascinating. We think about him as, you know, this, this great writer of uh, Anna Karenina and War and Peace and so on. Uh, and in many ways, he was a, you know, sort of Russia's second czar. He was famous in his own lifetime, world renowned. Uh, but after, like, he got a lot of his fame, um, he started writing more and more of these sort of social and economic treatises, um, not so much, you know, the, these great novels. Um, and so he was ruminating on the politics of his time. Um, and sort of starts to embrace a, a more uh, sort of Spartan peasant lifestyle. He goes back to his, um, even though he's born an aristocrat, he goes back to his, his aristocratic, uh, you know, plantation, as it were, back in, in Yasnaya Polyana, which is outside of, uh, outside of Tula, uh, and sort of adopts a, a simple peasant lifestyle, wears only a peasant tunic and, and, and tills the soil all the time. Um, and so he's 
focused on sort of the uplift of the peasantry, both on his own plantation and, and throughout Russia, uh, and sees the toll that alcohol is taking on his on on his you know on his friends and his neighbors and so on, um, and particular sees that it's the government that's you know the Russian government because they have a monopoly on vodka production, and and retail. Uh, that is ultimately pushing alcoholism on on the peasant class, right? And and profiting immensely from it. And so uh, he uses his sort of moral clout as Russia's second czar to to encourage Russia's first czar, you know, Nicholas II, then to um, you know to to do away with the uh, you know the so-called drunken budget and to uh, to implement actual sort of temperance uh, activists, you know, and activism, I suppose. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of the, the foundation. And that just it's not just in Russia. You know, I actually just I wrote up an entire article about this in Russian, um, you know, for a, for for a Russian audience. Hmm. Uh, but it had reverberations worldwide because he was seen as such an uh, not just a, uh, a literary figure, but also a spiritual leader. Uh, and so he inspires uh, through a lot of this al- activism uh, folks all around the globe, including uh, Tomas Masharik, who becomes kind of the. The founding father of independent Czechoslovakia is one of the first sort of temperance disciples of Leo Tolstoy, uh, but also Mahatma Gandhi, uh, you know, that temperance and prohibitionism because becomes central to his activism as well. Uh, and here in the United States, uh, leaders like uh, William Jennings Bryan, who ran three times for the, um, uh, you know, for the presidency of the United States on the Democratic ticket and kind of was was key to that movement into a progressive era. He was sort of wrapped in this uh, this notion of, of Tolstoy and Tolstoyanism uh, about how not just about temperance, but how you should not you don't necessarily have the right to exploit other people for your own financial well-being, which became sort of the, the bedrock of uh, you know progressivism in the United States. As you mentioned a few minutes ago, Russia did actually prohibit the government sale of vodka in 1914. How long did that last and why did it ultimately not stick? It's interesting because, again, it's one of these 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 policies um, ultimately that had a lot to do with, um, you know, the finances of the states uh, and understanding that, you know, even Nicholas started to, to realize that this was not a good idea to have, you know, one third of all the finances of the uh, the mighty Russian Empire being, you know, essentially founded on selling vodka to your own people. Um but, you know, the, the story behind Russia's institution of prohibition goes back to like 1905 in particular. They had this war with uh, with Japan, which they thought that they would win in a cakewalk. Um, and it ended up being this complete drunken fiasco from the, the call up of conscripts to the actual fighting of the war. And it became this embarrassing loss. Uh, and that begot sort of this general understanding, not only in Russia, but in militaries across Europe and around the globe that. Uh, drunkenness and alcoholism could mean the difference between between victory and defeat in some of these wars. And so even uh, you had, you know, the, uh, the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II in, in Germany said uh, in 1910, he says, uh, you know, victory in the next European war is going to go to the country that is the most sober. Um, and so everybody seemed to understand that um, that this was a, a part of military necessity was to have a sober army. Um, and so when World War One ultimately breaks out, uh, not just Russia, but a lot of uh, these belligerent countries institute prohibition as kind of a, uh, you know, a military mobilization measure. 
Um, and ultimately, he extends it, seeing that it, it worked out fairly well in, in the beginning, uh, extends it through the duration of the war uh, to have, you know, mo- you know prohibition, uh, you know, to, to ease wartime mobilization. Um, and it, what's weird is that it becomes um, one of the very few policies that extends not only through uh, Tsar Nicholas's time, Tsar Nicholas being the, the most conservative autocrat in, in all of Europe at that point in time, uh, but it endures right through the February 1917 revolution into the uh, which you know d- deposes the czar and, and replaces it with this kind of liberal socialist provisional government, um, but also into the the new Bolshevik government of uh, of uh, Lenin beginning in 1917. And so for Lenin, he's a, a revolutionary prohibitionist. He's uh, he understands that you know that alcohol is the way that. The, the czarists and the autocrats uh, had forever kind of kept the proletariat, kept the working class uh, stupefied and drunk and disorganized. Uh, and so uh, he was dead set on maintaining prohibitionism as long as he was in power. Uh, and so when he finally uh, su- succumbs to a series of, of strokes in the early 1920s, um, you know, he's still railing for prohibition, even in in recognizing that it's it's not going particularly well and there's a lot of bootlegging and everything like that uh but it's only his successor joseph stalin as he's kind of rising through the ranks and, and sort of uh solidifying his rule he's the one who rolls back prohibition in in russia and reinstitutes the um actually the the same vodka monopoly that the czars had uh except now emblazoned with a hammer and a sickle uh, ultimately in the interest of, of public finance, because it was a place where he could go to get a lot of money for his Soviet empire uh, very, very quickly, because he knew that, um, you know, Russians and, and Soviets across the board would, would drink it and, 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 and pay up and, and fund the budget that way. Sweden has been known for its innovation for a long time, Mark. How was the Swedes' temperance and prohibition attempts so impressive? Yeah, Sweden's interesting. Um I, I when I was doing my dissertation like 20 years ago or so, 15 <laughs> years ago, I suppose it was, um, you know, I wanted to do comparative politics. I wanted to see what alcohol politics was like in Russia and uh, the United States. Uh, and I wanted to choose a third case study. Um, and I knew German. German was, you know, sort of, you know, Schrod, the name is, is German. I, I've known German, lived in Germany for a while. Um, but I found that there really wasn't much interesting happening in Germany at that point in time when it came to alcohol politics. What was really, you know, sort of the hotbed of innovation was uh, was Sweden. So I ended up teaching myself Swedish. It took me another year uh, to do the research to go into the archives in Sweden because they had this system uh, that became known as, as the Gothenburg system, named after Sweden's second largest city. Uh, and, you know, if you go back 150 years, it, the situation in Sweden when it comes to drunkenness was a lot like it was in Russia and a lot like it was in a lot of these, these countries. Um, but they were able to... Uh, overcome a lot of that through this uh, sort of municipal system of, of munis- municipalization of the liquor trade. And so what they did essentially was they tried to take the, uh, they found that, you know, it, alcohol, again, wasn't the problem. It was, you know, the, the core of the problem was, you know, the liquor business and this profit motive that encouraged people to get other people drunk uh, you know, for the benefit of their own bottom line, for their own private profit. So their 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 solution was to remove the profit motive from the alcohol trade. Um, and so they did this by 
uh, you know, taking the alcohol trade in a given area in a given town and entrusting it to a, you know, some of the, the, the city's most um, sort of upstanding citizens. And they vowed that they would only take, you know, a 5% profit and everything else that, you know, that was, uh, you know, sort of the, the financial benefit of this alcohol trade was donated to local philanthropy, local farmers, cooperatives, and so on. And they found that it had this incredible effect. One is that it led to a huge decrease in alcohol, you know, alcoholism, alcohol consumption and crimes and arson and all the things that come with that. Um, but also led to a tremendous blossoming of civil society. All of a sudden, all these, um, you know, these, these self-help cooperatives and farmers cooperatives were suddenly flush with money and were able to, you know, build more roads and, and develop, you know, the local community in a way that they hadn't before. And so, uh, so for many decades, the Gothenburg system uh, expanded across, you know, not just across Sweden, but across uh, all of Scandinavia into parts of, of Britain, across Canada, and even into parts of the United States. And it was the foremost alternative to prohibitionism uh, because it, it gave you all of these, you know, these, these benefits of, of, you know, temperance with decreased amounts of crime and corruption and everything else uh, without all the, the black market and, uh, and stuff that comes with, with absolute prohibitionism. Similar things were happening in Germany around this. What was the schnapps revolution of the 1830s and 40s, and how did it impact Germany both economically and with its drinking behavior? Yeah, as well. We think about Germany today as like being synonymous with, you know, Oktoberfest is right around the corner, you know, people drinking lots of beers. Um, but what was interesting in the 1830s in particular was that Germany was increasingly a, uh, a hard liquor drinking country, kind of like Russia. Uh, they didn't have vodka, schnapps, which was by uh, Prussian Junkers, sort of the aristocracy. And so the, the dynamics were in Germany were very similar to what they were. Um, so that was part of the sort of developing this, the schnapps revolution was, was sort of the development of the, uh, the Prussian and thereby broader German economy uh, around, you know, I guess the, the wealth of the aristocracy and, and siphoning off the, the wealth of the, you know, the, I guess the, the peasant masses and so on um, through alcohol. And turning it into the wealth of the uh, the Junkers and the aristocracy and and uh, and the state that it was built upon, um, and so what's interesting is that when you get later into the 1890s, um, and you know right up until the beginning of World War II, uh, excuse me, World War One, uh, you have um, you know sort of socialists which had been banned in in, uh, in Germany under Bismarck for for quite some time, uh, but also sort of this this liberal opposition are fighting for the rights of German workers to have beer, while at the same time they're fighting against the the schnapps uh, that is you know that is the the aristocracy right. So they see beer as being you know the the stuff that uh, the good upstanding German worker can have to relax at the end of the day, and it's it's kind of helpful. They think of it as a temperance drink, uh, whereas the alternative is to go and get drunk on schnapps. You know, take a couple of shots as quickly as you can just to try to forget your you know daily misery and so on so um so that becomes part of this movement um in and not only in, in in germany but also in places like belgium uh to try to get away from uh sort of what they see as the oppression of liquor hard liquor uh and and more into sort of the temperance drink of 
of beer as a as a you know again sort of a, a proletarian a good helpful workers drink as it were which helps explain the uh, cropping, uh, the, the pop-up of beer halls all across the country throughout the 1800s and 1900s. How was temperance actually weaponized in yeah, Germany in exactly. the early 1900s? Exactly. I don't know if I lost you there. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Okay. Uh, yeah, the, uh, that, that helps explain the, uh, the beer halls that popped up all over the country in the 1800s into the 1900s as well. But how was temperance actually weaponized in Germany in the early 1900s? That's interesting because, um, you know, Germany, we don't think about it in terms of temperance because they didn't have so many of the things that we see as outward sort of indicators of temperance, like temperance lodges and pledges and so on. So a lot of it was handled sort of within the bureaucracy. Um, But uh, it becomes, you know, sort of the liquor question kind of becomes weaponized when um, as Germany and and, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm in particular is, is kind of ratcheting up wants to be a, a global competitor and, and go toe to toe with the British. Um, and he sees that, uh, you know, the only way to go toe to toe with the British is to have a, a you know, a, a strong military, um, and to have these dreadnoughts and have a strong Navy that kind of goes with that. Uh, but if you're going to build, you know, a huge military, you need money to do that. And so the easy way for, uh, for, for the German empire, just like every empire, as it turns out, uh, the, the place that you go to get money if you need it uh, is to ratchet up alcohol taxes. Um, and so that's what they did. They tried to, um, you know, they, they tried to essentially build the might of the German empire, you know, through the, through the, the livers of the German workers. Um, and, you know, by ratcheting up alcohol taxes, ratcheting up beer taxes and liquor taxes as well, uh, which, of course, the German workers did not like, and especially the German socialists at that point in time were very much opposed to uh, to ratcheting up taxes uh, that fell disproportionately on their, uh, you know, on their their constituents. Part two covers the British Empire. Why does a discussion on British temperance and prohibition, both on the Isles and around its global empire, require an understanding of the disproportionate political system uh, in the might of how uh, how the English and the alcohol business operated with its ingrained conservative political economic system? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, it's it's all part of, you know, when you step back, it's interesting to see that, you know, some of these different movements that we've kind of pigeonholed into their own sort of definitions, right? We got uh, suffragism, you got liberalism, you've got socialism, you've got all these isms, you know, temperance, you know, nationalism, uh, but they're all very much revolving around the same sort of dynamic, which is uh, opposition to uh, to predatory capitalism, right? Uh, opposition to uh, you know this liquor machine, as it were, this uh, this entrenched political machine uh, that gets people drunk for their own benefit and then exploits them, right? Um, that's essentially imperialism in some ways, right? You know, and so you see this uh, throughout the British Empire. You see the same playbook essentially being run time and again, uh, you know, whether it's in Ireland or whether it's in South Africa or whether it's in Australia or North America or India or, or China. You see this, the, the British essentially running the same playbook, which is that, you know, you, you um, come across these indigenous populations. You introduce alcohol to them, uh, in many cases, distilled alcohol. Uh which these indigenous populations in most cases didn't have any experience with. Um, you introduce alcohol to them, you get them addicted, 
as a way to sort of exploit them economically. Uh, but also it becomes sort of self-justifying as, as a mechanism of imperialism because you, you introduce hard liquors to these populations and then all of a sudden everybody gets rip-roaring drunk and then you clutch your pearls and go, oh my gosh, look at how uncivilized they are. Look at this quote-unquote black peril, right, uh, mm. that they can't hold their liquor. And that suddenly becomes justification for your sort of white man's burden for your, um, you know, understanding the, the British Empire and its, you know, so-called civilizing mission to to spread civilization. You, you just point and say, look, these people obviously can't hold their liquor. And whenever they do drink, they they end up, uh, you know, committing all sorts of horrible atrocities. That's going to be up to us now to, um, you know, to, to dominate them because they cannot, uh, you know, uh, understand these trappings of civilization without us. Uh, and so it becomes very, very interesting to see it, um, you know, to, to have these chapters uh, that deal, especially with sort of the, the external empire, right? Um, where you're going to South Africa or going to, uh, to India, for instance, where, you know, the, uh, the liquor seller is universally, it's, it's a white guy, right? Hmm. And the, the liquor drinkers, the liquor consumers are, are black. Or brown, right? I mean, they're they're Afri Native Africans or Native Americans or Native Indians in, in India, um, and so suddenly that dynamic of exploitation um, not only gets overlaid with dynamics of of uh, of race and ethnicity and everything else, uh, but it becomes very very clear, you know, this this kind of us versus them notion in ways that you might not get if you you know your if your frame of reference is you know, uh, Russians exploiting other Russians for profit. Now it's exploiting, you know, it's, 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 uh, Englishmen exploiting South Africans for profit or, you know, exploiting, uh, Indians for profit or, or the Chinese for profit in that same sort of way. Gandhi is obviously a crucial figure in India's uh, ultimate independence, uh, over Great Britain, did he understand the tool that was alcohol for the oppressors? And uh, did did he ultimately was part of his message to his people, uh, talking to them about understanding this idea of temperance and maybe even utilizing prohibition to try and get the British out of there? Oh yeah, to be sure. Uh, you know, he spent his first you know twenty years of political activism uh, not in India but in South Africa, where he was observing. You know, he was in, in this kind of indeterminate space. He was not black and was not white, uh, you know, according to sort of the racial hierarchy in South Africa. Um, and so he was sort of hashing out where it is that uh, where, you know, where that he fit in terms of this sort of racial hierarchy and, and, and what sort of rights you would have as a British citizen uh, outside the empire. Because when he was, you know, at the bar, when he was in London, when he was studying, he was a full British citizen. Right. He could vote. Um, and everything. But as soon as he moved outside of Great Britain, um, all of a sudden those rights that he had already had had been taken away from him. And so that became sort of the motivation for for a lot of this. And it was seeing how this this dynamic played out first in South Africa and then obviously later on into uh, uh, into India. Um, and so while he was a, a teetotaler uh, for for his entire life, um, he also saw, you know, the same sorts of alcoholic dynamics that you had in India, as you had in dealing with opium in China, for instance, that the British were building the might of their empire on the addictions of, of the native uh, Indians there, 
just as they had done with opium in uh, in China. Um, and so when he comes to India, when he returns to India as, as sort of a, a political activist, uh, you know, with the institution of the Indian National Congress, one of the first thing he, he does is, uh, and uh, his right-hand man, uh, Rajagopalachari, is that they develop this temperance organization. Um, and so what's interesting is that every single time that there's a crackdown, a British, you know, crackdown by the British Raj on quote unquote political activism, uh, and they end up jailing Gandhi and a number of the African, uh, excuse me, the Indian National Congress, uh, is that those who haven't been thrown in jail essentially retreat into temperance as if it were sort of a, a Trojan horse of political activism. They say, no, 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 we're not, we're not doing anything overtly political. We're working for the betterment and the moral uplift of the Indian population uh, through abstaining from alcohol. And so the British seemed to be okay with that. They couldn't raise a, a stink against temperance activism. But what was interesting is, is that the overlap between the Indian National Congress and the temperance activism was, I mean, they were all the same people doing the exact same stuff, right? And so temperance in India was virtually synonymous with um, you know, non-cooperation with the British uh, and, uh, and ultimately Indian national self-determination. I was a bit surprised by the chapter on the Ottoman Empire. Why did a predominantly Muslim culture need prohibition, Mark? Yeah, that was, again, I'm, the, I'm a more of a Russia guy. Uh, going into the Ottoman Empire, I was like, okay, this is a little bit outside my wheelhouse. <laughs> but you would think, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a Muslim caliphate, right? You know, you would think that prohibition was just, you know, you think that a chapter on the Ottoman Empire would be like a page and a half long, but it turns out there's quite a bit more to it, right? The, the Ottoman Empire was a, uh, it was kind of a bazaar of, of all these different uh, ethnicities, and they're all sort of self-governing communities. And even attitudes for alcohol varied dramatically. You had, um, you know, Saudis uh, in, on the Arabian Peninsula who were very strict and would not drink. Uh, but then you had, you know, sort of Muslims in Anatolia, in Turkey, uh, who would drink all the time, uh, you know, and uh, you know, Rocky, uh, which is the distillate, uh, tastes like black licorice, uh, is kind of the national drink of, of Turkey, right? So, uh, so it was very, very interesting to see how these dynamics came to play out in the Ottoman Empire. And temperance and, and prohibitionism uh, only uh, during World War I and, and after World War I, as you have this, you know, as, as the Ottoman Empire is kind of divided up between all the... Um, uh, all the, the conquering European, um, you know, countries. But, it, you know, temperance and prohibitionism comes to a fore because um, it wasn't so much about, you know, morality. It wasn't all about, you know, the Quran, although that kind of helps just as it does to have uh, sort of that, that moral influence of the, of the Bible when it comes to your, your political, um, you know, uh, movement in those cases. Uh, but prohibitionism only came out when it came to the realization that, hey, in these areas that are being occupied by the Greeks and the British in particular, they're selling all sorts of alcohol and all that benefit is going to benefit, you know, the Greeks and the British, right? That money should stay in our pockets here in Turkey, right? And so that became part of Turkish nationalism was promoting uh, temperance and prohibitionism to keep the benefit here and to keep that, you know, to prevent the British and the Greeks uh, from, uh, for making a profit at our expense, as it were, you know, at, at the Turkish expense, um, which was very bizarre because I don't know if you read a lot of history, Kemal Ataturk, the, the leader of this, uh, sort of the, the Turkish nationalist movement was probably the drunkest leader in all of world history. <laughs> um, 
you know, and so he, he died at the age of 53 from liver cirrhosis because he was drinking, you know, like a gallon or a couple liters of, of distilled liquor every night. Um, and so, but he was, uh, at the same time, you know, a, a, a heavy drinker, um, he was okay with the prohibitionism, uh, that, you know, as, as a pop, you know, political tool to keep the, the wealth of the country, you know, with the Turks, as opposed to being, uh, expropriated and exported out to the, the Greeks and to the British. Who was it that followed Gorbachev in Russia? Yeltsin. He was, uh, drunker than yeah, Yeltsin. Yeah. Ye- drunker than Yeltsin, huh? Drunker than Yeltsin, I would say. Wow. Yeah. In my my previous book on vodka politics, I had a whole chapter just on Yeltsin because he was that drunk. Uh, but you could also have, you know, you know, he he at least lasted until his seventies uh, or I guess he, maybe even his early eighties before he he went bottom up. Ooh, not to um, get too far off the beaten path, but do you have a good drunken Yeltsin story for us? I've got lots of good drunken Yeltsin is there stories. One, is there one that stands out? Uh, there's there's the famous picture there are a lot of famous pictures of, of Yeltsin being drunk um but one in particular when he came to the United States uh he came to the United States on a couple of occasions um you know even before he became president to try to drum up support for sort of Russian nationalism um but uh, apparently in, in one of those cases he got so drunk he was he was at uh, Blair House which is the uh the place where guests of the White House go it's just right across the street from the White House um, and on a couple of occasions, he got so rip roaring and drunk uh, and he couldn't find any food that uh, I guess the Secret Service ultimately found him out on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue in his underwear trying to hail a taxi cab because he wanted to go find some pizza. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. So <laughs> there are oh, of, uh, those are the things that come out of like like uh, Bill Clinton. He had his. Um, uh, his autobiography, uh, you know, some of these little vignettes kind of pop up uh, in, in these sorts of things. Like we tried to keep, you know, keep this one on the down low that we found uh, Boris Yeltsin outside in his underwear trying to hail a cab to go get pizza in the middle of the night. So, it doesn't get much better uh, than pizza when you're wasted at 3 a.m. So I guess I kind of understand. At least college me understands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's not a lot of, I don't know if you've been to D.C., there's not a lot of stuff downtown that no. stays open that late. No, you're right about that. I think that was a uh, very futile search for him. All right, part three of your excellent book is on the United States. We obviously talked a little bit earlier about how the early settlers and those who really founded this government exploited Native Americans, oppressed them through alcohol means. Uh, How was whiskey a larger part of the Lewis and Clark expedition than what we were taught in school back in the 1980s? Oh yeah, Lewis and Clark is interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I got the same education I think as everybody else. You know, public school education, and you know, just it, we think about them as explorers and all that. Um, and uh, what was interesting is that uh, it was probably the second most important item that they had on that expedition was whiskey. Uh, you know, the first most important was I, I guess you know guns and ammunition, um, but you know, food you could. You could find along the the way, you know, you could you could go hunting and, and, and fishing and all that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, but it wasn't as easy to have have liquor. And they also recognized that it was important if you wanted to do any trading with the Native Americans, they had to have a lot of liquor with you. Uh, but the liquor, you know, ran out, I guess, what was it like a, a two and a half year expedition? Um, you know, the, the liquor ran out after the first year, uh, I think after the first nine months. And so the rest of it was dry, <laughs> um, you know, and so, uh, 
and I think actually one of the first instances of, of um, insobriety on the Lewis and Clark expedition, somebody had broken into their, 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 you know, whiskey stores uh, and gotten drunk. And so uh, there's some, some insubordination there. And they're like, <laughs> everybody was really upset because they're like, don't you understand that this liquor has to last us the extent of our entire expedition? Uh, you know, we just can't find this stuff along the route. And so that was, uh, you know, it became sort of an interesting little, little footnote, even to the Lewis and Clark expedition. So at what point did Native Americans try and fight back and try and insist that the white man not exploit them through alcohol means? Uh, it, it was all throughout. I, I think from the very beginning, you know, we were talking about uh, early on how alcohol was sort of the, the first thing that was introduced to Native American populations. Uh, pretty much every Native American war that we have, usually if you dig into it, you know, had to do with... Um, alcohol in some mm. way usually it ended up some white liquor trader getting a, a native american drunk uh and uh and stealing from him his you know, swindling his his land or his uh or his um pelts his furs or whatever uh and then it becomes you know back and forth it goes all the way back to king philip's war in, in um uh you know in uh, in in new england back in the 1600s um but the one that i found most interesting um was where I grew up, I grew up on the Mississippi River in uh, the Quad Cities, Davenport, Iowa, mm -hmm. Rock Island, Moline, Illinois. Um, and uh, that's right where um, Blackhawk was from. Chief Blackhawk from the, the, the Sauk and Fox tribes um, was right across the, the river from where I grew up. Uh, you know, obviously a hundred and some odd years, 150 years earlier. Um, but, uh, you know, so we knew about the Blackhawk Wars, you know, we knew about Chief Blackhawk and, you know, we know about the Chicago Blackhawks now, I suppose, as well as the hockey team. Um, but, you know, when it came to the, the reasons for these wars, the way it was usually taught was just like, oh, you know, who, who can explain the, these, you know, you know, these uh, uh, uncivilized uh, barbarians who, who lived out on our plains, right? Uh, but if you look into it, like the Black Hawk War, like every other Native American war, was at heart a temperance war. Hmm. Um, and so uh, there was the, the backstory was that uh, Saucanook, which was the, the Black Hawk village, which is now part of Rock Island, Illinois, um, you know, it was uh, the Native American tribes. Right. And um, that was their, their tribal entity. And then you started to have more and more sort of white settlers come into the territory and they coexisted more or less peacefully for, uh, you know, for the better part of a generation. Um, and uh, the problems only began when the, the, the white settlers started selling alcohol and trading alcohol to the uh, to his fellow tribesmen. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, there's one in particular, uh, you know, this, uh, this this guy, he's got his own island, Vandruff, uh, Joshua Vandruff. Uh, so there's now a Vandruff's Island in the middle of the Rock River uh, <laughs> that I'd been to a million times, never knew the backstory to. Uh, but Vandruff uh, shows up um, in Saucanook Village uh, while the, the the tribe is at their their winter hunting grounds, uh, and he sets up with his nine kids and takes takes over Blackhawk's longhouse, right? Uh, and Blackhawk comes back, finds this guy in his house, literally, um, and you know making alcohol, and he he. he pleads with him time and time again, stop selling alcohol, stop making alcohol. So eventually Vandruff moves across to, uh, to this Island that now bears his name, sets up his own tavern, uh, and keeps selling alcohol and, and, and trading alcohol. Um, and so 
Blackhawk is, is pissed off. He's, you know, trying to tell everybody that he can. He starts to tell uh, Clark, William Clark, who's like, you know, of, Will, you know, uh, of Lewis and Clark fame. He becomes the, uh, the chief Indian officer in St. Louis. And so probably the most in touch and knowledgeable guy about Indian affairs, you know, out of, you know, outside of Washington, D.C. Um, so he goes and he tells William Clark about it, tells everybody about this, that this guy is continuing to sell alcohol against not only the law, which prevented, you know, selling or bartering alcohol with Native Americans, but also after repeated entreaties. And so eventually uh, Black Hawk takes, you know, the law into his own hands uh, and goes across to this island, smashes this guy's tavern, smashes all of his, his whiskey, all of his liquor, um, and then paddles back, you know, back back to, to home base. Um, so, so Vandruff, you know, is pissed off at this. He ends up writing, uh, instead of telling... The local authorities at at Fort uh, Fort Armstrong, which is now the the Rock Island Arsenal, um, or going down river to St. Louis, he actually rides overland to Vandalia, Illinois, which is at that point in time the the capital. It's about a three day ride uh, over horseback, and tells the the governor that uh, he's being attacked by these vicious Native Americans, uh, you know, who are doing all these horrible, unspeakable things, and and you have to defend us. And, uh, you know, the very Jacksonian governor at that point in time uh, calls up the militia, doesn't even ask the U.S. government, calls up the, the Illinois militia and initiates this war against Blackhawk on this false premise that, uh, you know, that he was um, that, you know, that the liquor seller was the guy who was in the wrong. Um, and so that begets, you know, just one in the series of these Native American wars that begins as a temperance war. You know, if people would stop selling alcohol to the Native Americans, we wouldn't have these problems. Hmm. Was alcohol also used as a tool to keep African-American slaves subservient in the South in the 1800s all the way up to the Civil War? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if if you go back and read um, Frederick Douglass's uh, autobiography of, uh, you know, of Frederick Douglass, uh, an American slave, he talks about how that was, um, you know, one of the ways of trying to give native, you know, give the slaves a sense of freedom. Like over the weekends, they could drink um, and then they would get, you know, the, the, the landowners, the slave owners would get the slaves so drunk that by the time Monday came around and they're, you know, trying to shake off the, you know, the cobwebs of having these hangovers um, that's, you know, they, that they say, okay, well, this is your freedom, right? You know, your, your freedom is either the bottle or it's work. And so getting drunk all the time, uh, didn't seem like much of a freedom by comparison. So that was of the technology of, of slavery, and in, in, I guess at that point as well. Was drinking a common part of newly freed African American communities in the South post Civil War? Uh, uh, again, this this kind of gets overlaid with our senses and and the, the stories that that we get told uh, about you know sort of I guess the, the white supremacy discourse in the same way that you had in. Uh, in South Africa or in India or in, um, you know, or in Australia. Um, and so you, you have this notion all the time that, uh, that's, uh, you know, oh, these, these freed slaves, they're, they, they're not going to, you know, they're not educated enough. They're not uplifted enough to be able to handle their own emancipation. That was the, you know, the, the, the phrase that was constantly being used. Uh, but across the board, um, you know, African Americans drank far less than did, uh, did than did white Americans, um, and so it was, um, you know, there was a lot of temperance uh, activism within African American communities, 
uh, in the Reconstruction era in particular. But it was one of those areas where there was a lot of, um, I guess, overreach, I guess, outreach, I suppose, handholding between f- newly freed African-American communities and the, the white communities in the American South, because it was an area that both could cooperate on for the benefit of both black communities uh, and white to try to uplift both of them at the same time. Mark, how industrialized had liquor become in the earliest twenty uh, earliest early twentieth century America, and what sort of political clout did it possess for those first two decades of the twentieth century? Oh, there was a lot. I mean, so as you had the the expansion of um, you know of of liquor distilling, it, it's interesting. I mean, there there are two different dynamics here. I mean, there's there's the liquor side of it, and then there's the beer side, right? So so beer before you get to sort of modern bottling and canning is fairly localized. You can't send it very far without it's, you know, without it spilling or, or going, uh, going stale, right. Going sour. Uh, so beer was kind of a, a city drink, right? So you start to get these big centers of brewing in places like St. Louis and in, in Milwaukee, Chicago. Um, but distilling is, you know, you can, you can bottle up, uh, you know, a bottle of Jack Daniels and ship it. It doesn't spoil and so on. So, um, so you start to get, you know, these, these centers of distilling in places like Kentucky, um, you know, I guess North Carolina as well, you know, bootlegging and, and, and moonshining later on. Um, and so it, it starts to have its, its own sort of uh, political clout, especially in the big cities. You have it in, in New York City, um, Chicago and so on. Uh, and so in these, these big cities, you have these political machines, Right. You've got uh, Tammany Hall in in, um, uh, in in New York City and every city worth its, you know, worth its weight, I suppose, had its own sort of mini Tammany Hall uh, where you had, um, you know, uh, these very wealthy, um, you know, uh, liquor purveyors, whether they are, you know, the, the brewers, the distillers or the, the saloon keepers um, became sort of, you know, they made a lot of profit uh, on the one hand, but they were also sort of in charge of the local communities, uh, right? I mean, it was sort of the, the touch point for, uh, for anything. If you wanted to get a job, uh, you know, you went to the local saloon, you know, figure out what sort of jobs were there. So they became sort of the linchpins of the local community and were able to sort of parlay that clout, that, uh, that political and social clout, as well as the economic clout that comes with selling alcohol um, into sort of disproportionate influence on, on local politics and then even into state politics, uh, and then later on into national politics as well. So, um, so yeah, so these this became sort of the, the beginning, the genesis of these so-called liquor machines, uh, where you had that influence of, of big city uh, political corruption fueled by the uh, disproportionate um, you know, profits that are being made from the, the liquor trade. And on the national level, prohibition ultimately goes af- into effect here, on January 17th, 1920, and last all the way until the final month of 1933. Why did Prohibition ultimately fail here in the U.S.? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it's in some ways, it's self-evident, right? Uh, it, it, people talk about it as the, um, as, as a, you know, this, this benevolent experiment. Uh, and, and the ex- explanation usually is that, well, we could have known that it was a bad idea until we tried it, but they tried <laughs> it for a long time, uh, as we have found out. Yeah. Uh, but it seems like everywhere it kind of begets cronyism, corruption, sort of the, uh, the Al Capones of the world and, uh, and makes, you know, the, the argument was, is that it makes, uh, criminals out of 
normal everyday Americans, right? People who saw no problem in, in getting a drink every now and then now had were, were breaking the law to do so. Um, and so that became part of it. But I think also overlaid with that was the uh, the changing political circumstances as well. Um, and so by the time you get to the, you know, 1929, you've got the stock market crash uh, and the Great Depression that kind of comes after that. Um, and, and so all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the liquor industry, which had been, um, you know, vilified for, for generations as kind of the scourge upon the local community, is able to sort of rebrand itself as, uh, you know, a good, fine, upstanding taxpayer, right, that we could, we could do so many things. We could uh, put people back to work, you know, in, in bottling and in hotels and in transportation and in, you know, brewing and distilling and all that if we were to legalize this trade. And so during the Great Depression, I think that kind of opened up sort of this, this window of opportunity and this policy window uh, to revisit some of those, um, you know, some of those questions that had been raised, I guess, during that, those preceding 13 years of, of prohibition. Um, and so sort of reframing, uh, you know, the, the liquor trade no longer as the, as the villain, but as a potential good guy and upstanding taxpayer, I think that was that was part of the, the dynamic that went in there as well. All right. Last couple of questions, Mark. First question is, do you drink? <laughs> uh, it's good that you don't have the video on right now, but uh, yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> I, I, um, no, I, it's uh, my, right. my last book uh, on which is on Russia and vodka. Um, you know, I tried to kind of stake out this position. I, I, I think I drink more than your average American, but less than your average Russian. So somewhere in that range. <laughs> That's a lot of gray um, area. It is. It's pretty gray too, you know? And so it's, uh, for, for the most part, I, I tend to, you know, when I was in Russia, I would drink a lot of vodka as you do. Um, but, uh, but after writing a whole book about vodka and, and recognizing sort of the, the, the toll it takes on your society and, and also your health, uh, I have a hard time drinking hard liquors nowadays. So I'm, I'm mostly a beer guy. Um, uh, but also, you know, when my grandmother passed away, she was, uh, she would drink every night at 5 a.m. or mm. 5 p.m. She would have her, her nightly Manhattan. And I always thought that tasted like gasoline. Mm. Uh, but after she passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 100 or two days short of 100, uh, she left all this whiskey and vermouth. And we all started celebrating and drinking, you know, Manhattans in, in memory of my grandma. And I started liking it, right? So, I, you know, I'll, I'll have a, a Manhattan every now and then, uh, in addition to some beer for the most part. Oh, that's really cool. All right, perhaps hearkening back to uh, a time where you were drinking more hard liquor, do you have that <laughs> boorish Yeltsin moment where it was 3 a.m., you're in your underwear trying to hail a cab to grab some late-night pizza? Oh, everybody's got those, in, in <laughs> Russia, especially in Russia. I've got, I've got drunken Russian story. You know this, this comedian, uh, Burt Kreishner? Yeah, Burt Kreishner, the, the machine. Yeah, uh, I think my 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 understanding is that pretty much anybody who spends any time in Russia has their their machine story, <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, I've got I've got so many machine stories, um, and most of them occur like his does on a train. You know, and, and we're drinking is absolutely imperative. Um, and so I, I remember God, I, which 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 drinking on on a Russian on a train story. Um, <laughs> I remember I got I got kicked out of Russia once because they wouldn't extend my visa any further. And so I was at, at Moscow State University. A lot of my friends were Americans. They're like, oh, we'll just fly home to the United States and renew our visa. I'm like, I don't have that kind of money to just fly home to the United States. And so I hopped a train to to Ukraine um, and uh, to, to renew my visa. And uh, and so I was all alone for, you know, this is two months 
<laughs> that I was just kind of backpacking across across Ukraine. But we had a going away party the night before at the university, and I was, you know, feeling the effects. I still had a hangover on it the next day. And so we're in this little coupe, right, this little four-person box, you know, on this this train. Uh, so I'm there with, with, you know, uh, with three other Russian guys, and I'm just hung over. I'm like, I can't drink anymore. So as soon as we start, the train starts moving out of the uh, out of the station, um, you know, all of a sudden the vodka bottles are popping open, and I'm like, oh, I can't even smell it. I can't even, you know, deal with this. And they're like, hey, hey, our friend up there on the top bunk, you know, do you want some vodka? I'm like, no, can't can't do it, man. Sorry, you know. Uh, like, okay. So they're all drinking all that, and then um, I, I realized that we're going to hit the Ukraine border like at three in the morning or something like that. And I have to have as an American citizen, I have to have this, the exit visa stamped leaving Russia. And I have to have my entry visa stamped getting into Ukraine. So I'm, I'm totally ready for that to happen. Right. So, you know, the, the train stops at the, at the border at 3 AM, you know, these armed guards come through with their AK 47s and their, uh, and their dogs, you know, drug sniffing dogs and stuff like that. And I'm ready to go. And these other guys who have been drinking all night, these Russian guys, uh, you know, all of a sudden the door flies open and this guy's here, you know, with his gun. And he's like, I need to see your documents. And I'm like, I got mine at the ready, ready to go because I need that stamp. And as I, this guy's looking over my documents, uh, you know, one of the the, the guys who've been drinking all night goes, hey, 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 this guy up here, he doesn't drink vodka. I don't <laughs> think he's Russian. And, uh, you know, the, the, the border guard looks at him and looks at my documents. He said, well, according to this, he's American. He's like, oh, OK. Well, that explains it then. <laughs> this guy's drink, <laughs> and so they, they they were just under the assumption that I was a, a sober Russian for much of that, um, and that lasted until the next morning, probably about seven a.m. when the sun came up. All of a sudden, you know, we've got a new American friend with us here in the coupe, right? And so we're gonna be started drinking, and we were drinking bottles of vodka by you know by eight in the morning. We, I was just completely rip roaring. <laughs> um, which is not a good thing if you're going into a country where you don't know anybody to be that, that drunk. Um, and I'll just, I can go on with the story, but, um, but I remember I got off at the, the, the train station in Kiev and I had to train, you know, I had to, there were no ATMs or anything like that in, in the country. So you had to exchange your, uh, dollars for Ukrainian currency, the Krivnia, right? So I had to exchange this. And so I'm getting in a line. Oh, I'm hungover already. It's it's you know one o'clock. It's a hot summer afternoon, and um, and uh, this this lady kind of beckons to me. She she says to me, you know, Molodo, young man, come over here, come over here. And she's like, um, you know, I can give you an exchange that's better than what these other guys can offer you, right? It's it's a black market exchange rate, and uh, and I, I'm not thinking particularly straight. So I'm I'm thinking, but oh yeah, why why not help this lady out? You know, I got a I got a fifty dollar bill here. I just need to exchange it for $50 worth of, uh, of currency. If I can help this lady out, sure, why not, right? And so I go over and I'm like, yeah, okay, we'll do this. We'll do this kind of off to the side. And I give her this $50 bill and I got suckered in. I did not see it coming at all, right? And this was, I was totally being played. I was totally set up. And uh, all of a sudden this guy comes in. He's like, I don't know, six foot five, 300 pounds, just muscular. He's got this suit on, looks very, very official. And he just, you know, throws me essentially, you know, across. He, he's, he starts yelling at me, berating me. He's like, you know, essentially, don't you know not to, you know, to, to solicit this black market stuff. You're only supposed to use the official, uh, you know, exchange places for currency speculate right over here. And just puts the fear of God into me. Oh, and wow. so he takes the money, 
the lady runs off, you know, and he, he crams this thing back in my hand and up my heart's beating a million miles a minute. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I did not mean to be breaking the rules. And he just goes chasing off after this lady. Right. And, uh, and they're, they're both running out of here. And I looked down and he had put a dollar bill in my hand. So he took the 50, oh, left me no. dollar. And I was like, you son of a bitch. Right. I'm going, I start <laughs> chucking through my backpack with everything up and I go running through, I'm chasing this guy. And it was the stupidest thing I think I've ever done because like, if I ever caught the guy, he was, like I said, six foot, he was going to pound me within an inch of my life. Right. And so everybody knew that this was the scam and I'm running through this, uh, you know, through the, up and down these, these uh, parts of the, uh, the Kiev train station. Uh, and all these people are yelling at me. They're like, did they swindle you? And I'm like, yeah, they got me. It's like, they went that way. And, and it's just in a country where they're, you know, sort of police are ubiquitous. You see them everywhere. That day there was not a policeman to be found. And I just got swindled out of 50 bucks. And all of a sudden I'm like, man, I hate this country. You know, five minutes into it, I get <laughs> taken for my money, taken for, but I learned a very, very valuable lesson that day on the importance of, of maybe being a little sober when you're going to a new country and where you don't know anybody uh, and you don't know what the, the ground rules are like. Oh my gosh, you must be right. Maybe everybody does have that machine story if they spend any time in Russia, and perhaps it does uh, at least begin, if not uh, play out, on a train entirely. Yeah, yeah, trains, man. Uh, <laughs> Russian train. Get, get ready. Get ready for some drinking. It's heading your way. Mark Lawrence Schrod is an associate professor of political science at Villanova University and a published author. His newest book is titled Smashing the Liquor Machine, A Global History of Prohibition. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Mark, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this excellent book. Yeah, no problem. It's my pleasure. Join me next time when I speak with New York Times bestselling author Mary Roach on Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.